welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleague, Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. And first of all, Happy New Year to our listeners. Let it be a peaceful and healthy one for everybody. So let's get off to a positive note. But before I suppose we get off on a positive note, I better remind everybody that the subject matter of this podcast can be upsetting for some. And so given the subject matter and given that I'm about to give a health warning, please take note. And if you think that you might be upset or disturbed by the content of this podcast, then now's the time to look away and go off and make a cup of coffee or do something else. So having given the health warning, let's, as I said, start off on this positive note and by looking at something that is a very topical because it is in the news as we speak. And that, of course, is the very recent legal argument concerning the disclosure or non-disclosure agreement that was entered into by the late Jeffrey Epstein and the plaintiff, and the this is the plaintiff in the case that has been brought by her against Prince Andrew. And we thought, that's me and Danny, thought, well, this is actually quite an interesting subject. Regardless of the outcome of the Prince Andrew case and the outcome of the application made by his lawyers, which is to the effect that the case should be dismissed because the plaintiff, Virginia, entered into a settlement agreement with Jeffrey Epstein, which they say brought to an end any kind of case or cases that she might have had. So what is interesting is that there was a settlement agreement, because is it not the case in our experience, Danny, that it's unusual in a sexual abuse case to have such an agreement? It is in the UK. I mean, when we're talking about settlements in America, I think non-disclosure agreements are a lot more commonplace. We've seen them in the Weinstein cases, they dated back many, many, I think some of them decades when that case came to trial because a number of the witnesses possibly were unable to give evidence because they had previously signed NDAs. And so this conversation has previously come up about whether these can be broken, the implications and, you know, the advice that people have taken at the time and their understanding when they've signed these agreements. Yeah, I and mean, of course, we have seen in places such as Australia, where legislation has been enacted to enable, under certain circumstances, settlements to be effectively undone. So stepping back a bit, you know, we have obviously cases where there are settlements. In other words, a settlement is negotiated by us on our client's behalf with either the perpetrator or those responsible for the perpetrator so that they get their compensation. And it's very unusual for our clients to enter into any kind of agreement 
to say, oh, they're not going to speak about what happened to them when they were um, abused or, you know, there's no kind of gag or any kind of restriction on them being able to speak about their experiences or about the fact that they brought a case and that they've succeeded. Sometimes we get a requirement for an agreement to be entered into, but that's usually keep confidential the fact that there's been a settlement and a sum of money has been paid. There's never anything that stops them from going to the police or to the press and say, this is what happened to me when I was a child or a young person or whatever. Yes, it's odd from our perspective to see such an agreement. But like you're saying, Danny, they're more commonplace in the States than back here in um, the UK. And of course, one of the reasons why we don't have such agreements usually here in the UK is because I think we all question what is the value? Because you can't stop somebody settling their case and then going off to the police if they've not done so already and making a complaint, because that would be contrary to public policy. And then, of course, I think everyone thinks, well, if there was an agreement and one of the parties broke the terms of the agreement, you'd end up with another court case all over again. Yeah, I think the the risk is with somebody, if they've signed a non-disclosure agreement, is the repercussions as you say now it depends on the individual circumstances as we've discussed them being quite commonplace in america in certain circumstances as i say when we read the press you see them when celebrities have had children with with people that they've signed non-disclosure so they don't know how much money they've got or or they've kept it secret again with, with sexual assaults we've seen it with stars in america i mean they may be more commonplace in england they just haven't been publicised. But it does cause me great concern. And and I think we would both say if we had such agreement come in for our clients, we would be quite worried about it. Because, you know, as you say, you wouldn't want a situation, for example, where an abuser's name comes out in the press, and your client has, you know, been sexually assaulted and brought a claim that they may be called to give evidence potentially about this or support somebody else's claim. And, you know, depending on the terms of that non-disclosure agreement, whether they would be barred from doing so to some extent, or fear that they risk some repercussion from it. Exactly. But there's also the point that if the agreement was so tight that it caused those sorts of problems, I think it would be, in the use of the legal expression, contrary to public policy and um, be unenforceable, which again comes back to my point, which is I often question the value of these agreements in a subject matter such as this. You see these settlement agreements in lots of other arenas, employment um, disputes and commercial disputes and so on. But when it's coming to allegations of crime, serious criminality, it's very difficult to see how you can have a watertight agreement because at the end of the day, you can't suppress the reporting of serious wrongdoing. It's just, you know, it would be just, I think, at risk of being struck down for being contrary to public policy, because public policy is, is that crimes should be reported and investigated and prosecuted. I suppose in this country, especially some of the the, the big group actions we've seen, by having a non-disclosure that prevents somebody saying the amount of settlement they've had in the press, I imagine some organisations would be keen to do that to, you know, avoid pinpointing the value of potential claims. Now, we know it's nowhere near that simple. Each case is based on its own merits and own facts. But I imagine that, you know, if you have one 
claimant that has received X amount of money and then you have a group action of others coming in later, their expectation may be to receive a similar sum. That may be why some organisations... I can understand the logic behind that, even though I might not necessarily agree, but I can understand the logic. You know, we do see occasionally this requirement for a client, if they're going to accept a sum of money, not to be in a position to think that they can go around broadcasting it. And I can understand why some organisations are sensitive about that and require an agreement to that effect. But of course, that doesn't stop anyone from reporting the fact that they've been abused or from taking some other kind of legal action. It just prevents them from telling the world that they got X thousand pounds or whatever the sum was from that particular institution or defendant or, or whatever. I think, you know, it all starts to get very tricky when the agreement is designed to stop a complainant reporting or taking yeah. some kind of legal action. I agree. I think anything that restricts somebody's rights or, or freedoms or to support somebody else, you, you know, in actions or, or be a witness to such case is incredibly detrimental and shouldn't well, should be really considered strongly whether that that should be signed. The figure amount, perhaps, as you say, you can understand that, but that's the only element that I see why there would be such agreement. But then, of course, it starts to get interesting when the person is actually represented by lawyers because, you know, because, you know, the lawyer's job is to make sure that that person makes an informed decision as to whether or not they enter into the deal or not, as the case may be, and if they're going to enter into the deal, but they actually understand what they are signing up to. So I can understand the argument, which is, well, you've got to sign this agreement, you have lawyers representing you, negotiating you, advising you, so it's a bit rich for you now to come forward and say, well, actually, I don't want to be bound by this agreement that I entered into when it was convenient at the time, but no longer is convenient. You know, that does smack of being a bit unreasonable if, that, if you had that particular scenario. I'm not saying that's the scenario in this particular case, far from it, because we don't know. We don't know what went on in 2009 or whenever it was when this agreement was um, entered into. No doubt um, all will be revealed in, in due course, but we shall see. But, you know, I think it gets even more difficult when the, the victim takes a sum of money is legally represented and an agreement is then negotiated for them then to turn around and say, actually, I don't want to be bound by it anymore. Yeah. And this case that we're discussing is, I guess, quite unique in nature is that, that this non-disclosure agreements come out in respect of Jeffrey Epstein. But as you say, we don't know the terms of it yet, but, but from how it's been reported in the press, it was in regards to abuse conducted by him and others, which is quite broad brush. I think so. As I say, we haven't seen it. It hasn't been disclosed fully yet, the terms of it. But that's very broad, you know, for, for somebody like Virginia in this case, who, you know, who has disclosed multiple abuse by multiple people, that that would have been drafted and agreed and accepted by her lawyers. Yeah. And then, you know, from the copy that's available on the Internet, she's going to sign it. Well, it appears she's going to sign it. Which, you know, there's a signature there in the in the box. You know, it's intriguing because it sort of answers some questions, but it, it creates more questions that have yet to be answered. You know, I think just sort of generally speaking, why would you have an agreement that has such terms? And why would you want to enter into such an agreement with such terms? 
you know, is intriguing and I'd like to know the answers to those questions. I'm mindful with this is that, again, because it's still reported whether we have seen the full document and considering that this case seems to have been rumbling on, it seems for almost forever we've been talking about this, this case, is that her lawyers would have seen this document. I imagine sometime ago, I'd be surprised if this is just surfaced and, you know, who's representing her and advising her has just become aware of it, that this hasn't already been considered to some extent. Mm, yeah, you know, it's. I think this is a story that is going to run and run. I can't see how on earth it's going to end neatly for either party at this stage. Anyway, so we shall see. So we've just had a general chat about these sorts of agreements. I suspect it's a subject that we will return to in the coming weeks. When we talk about things that, that hit the press, I imagine anyone that's considering any form of NDA now or in the future, we're going to look at this, come out and um, really consider the terms of it. I imagine yeah. going forward, yeah. this is going to be a key point for people being advised in respect of what may come in the future and what they will be won't be limited to do. And of course, there's always unforeseen consequences because defendants who like to settle a case but to have something written down on paper and agreed to by everybody might be thinking, well, what's the point of us settling a case if it's only going to be thrown back in our faces in a, you know, a couple of decades' time? It may be a disincentive to defendants to do the right thing and settle cases brought against them and say, right, we may as well take the case all the way to trial and have some certainty. You know, if we lose, we lose. If we win, we win. We know where we stand. Whereas if we go and settle a case, you know, have we actually settled it or are we going to find in 10, 15, 20 years time someone saying, oh, we're no longer bound by this because. Yeah. All of this is a situation where I think the story isn't going to end here. Uh, it's going to create a lot of thought and be very provocative for lawyers when they're thinking about settling a case, no matter which side of the fence you're on. On that note, thanks, Danny. Thanks, listeners. As always, if you have any thoughts or questions or you'd like to discuss matters with us, please do not hesitate to get in touch. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.